Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Isaiah. Once again, Isaiah chapter 49. There's some Bibles available in the back for you to use. You can follow along with the insert found in your bulletin. If you were here last week, you'll remember, I hope, that we shifted from our study through the book of First Peter, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we began this Advent season uh, by focusing on the book of Isaiah, and specifically four passages in Isaiah that have come to be known in the history of the church as the servant songs, the servant songs. Now, these are not the only passages in the book of Isaiah where the word servant is used, nor are they, on, nor are they the only passages in Isaiah that we would consider songs. But they are passages, four unique passages that bring uh, the servant of the Lord and the song of God together and point to the coming person and work of the Messiah. The Messiah of Israel, long promised. And so last week we looked at Isaiah 42. Verses 1 through 9. Today we turn to Isaiah 49, 1 to 3. Next week we'll turn to Isaiah 50, 4 through 11. And then finally Isaiah 52 and 53 will be our last servant song. And as you'll see today, there are common themes and common threads that run throughout these four songs. There's a lot of, a lot of overlap in these songs. Each of them are filling in and, and expanding, we might say, our understanding and, and the beauty and the wonder of this servant that God is sending. We already established last week, and I'm not going to spend time doing it this week, uh, that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is the servant of the Lord. Again, not in every passage in the book of Isaiah, but distinctly and profoundly in these four servant songs. Jesus is the servant of the Lord that Isaiah speaks of. Mark chapter 10, verses 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this Christmas season, these songs are giving us an opportunity to simply stop, slow down, and meditate on who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how he came to do it. One wonders how a 21-year-old, 22-year-old Jesus, when he heard these passages in the synagogue, before he began his public ministry, about the age of 30, Jesus in his early 20s or late teens, what, what, did, what did he know about how these things spoke of in regards to him and to his life? Listen with me and I invite you to stand if you're able uh, for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 49 verses 1 through 13, listen as I read. This is God's holy word. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. 
The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who were in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Amen. This is Brothers and sisters, you and I live in a world more than any other time, I believe, in a world of constant voices, in a world that incessantly cries in a million different ways, listen to me, listen to me. From marketers, especially this time of year, wanting to promise and sell us joy through our stuff, to politicians promising a better world if you just give them your vote, to media outlets pushing fear and guilt and the need for anger, through billboards through notifications, flyers, commercials, news reports, blogs, tweets, posts. The voices come from everywhere. And they don't stop. 
Instead, with with self-appointed authority, they speak to you and I, and they tell you what you need to think, how you need to feel, and the way you need to respond in this world. We live in a world of incessant voices. After hearing me read that passage from Isaiah 49 this morning, you probably know where I'm going with this. Last week our passage began, the first servant song that we looked at began with this word, behold, give attention to, stop and consider The servant who comes to make all things right. The servant who comes to set captives free. Who comes for the bruised and the battered. And what good news that is for we who are bruised and battered. And today, our passage begins not with behold, but with listen to me. With a divine voice speaking to us, his people saying, listen to me. And so just two truths that I want us to hang the rest of our thoughts on and use to walk through this passage. And the first one is this. The servant Jesus demands your attention. The servant Jesus demands your attention. In a noisy world, particularly in a noisy season like this one, there is a voice that must cut through the fog of all of it. And it's right here. It's not a voice that's going to shout louder than all of the things that you hear, but it is a voice that is weightier than all of the loudness. It's drowning it out. It's a voice that to be heard requires stillness and quiet and intentionality. And yes, it's a voice that demands to be heard. That's a harsh word in our culture these days. Demands? You're going to demand something from me? Yes. (laughs) Jesus has that kind of authority. He demands that you listen. Not just you, his people, those who acknowledge his name. This is not some local deity. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. What does the passage say? Listen, O coastlands, you peoples from afar. From sea to shining sea, from continent to continent, Jesus demands your attention. What Isaiah is going to tell us in this passage, and we're not going to be able to cover everything, we're not going to be able to overturn every rock, but what Isaiah tells us from the mouth of the servant himself in this passage is why he must be heard, why he deserves to be heard, why he has the authority to speak into your life. I want you to notice two things in these first three verses or four verses that compel us, that are compelling to us. His calling and his condescension. 
His calling and His condescension. First of all, His calling. We, we talk about destiny in our world. Our world knows what that means. They talk about it. Anyone on the street would know. But destiny implies some impersonal force acting upon us. And that in randomness, there is somehow purpose. But we who gather this morning in Christ know that that's not how the world works. Yahweh the creator of heaven and earth wields control over every molecule, molecule, every birth. Nothing is random, nothing is impersonal. And so the servant declares from his own mouth that his life and his life's work, much like the prophets of old, has God's hand on it in a unique way, even before he's born. It's all over this passage The servant Jesus' calling is clear, and it's from Yahweh. In the first song, he was chosen. In this song, he is called. He is made to be. Jeremiah knew this very thing, the prophet of old. Jeremiah, he writes at the beginning of his prophecy from the Lord, before I formed you in the womb, the Lord says to Jeremiah, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And it's this divine calling that grounded Jeremiah and gave him authority as he spoke to God's people. It's this same divine call that grounded the servant Jesus and gave him authority to speak to those around him. And so these words in Isaiah 49, speaking of the servant written hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, they don't speak of some abstract fictional figure. They speak of a historical reality of one born in time and place and space. By divine calling to a mission that was birthed in eternity but that was lived out in the first century A.D. in the Middle East. And so what was his mission? What was his mission? That's where the prophet takes us next. Well, real briefly, his mission was one of warfare. His mission was one of warfare. Last week we focused on the the gentleness of the Savior. A bruised reed, he will not break. But meekness does not imply weakness. The servant called from the womb, look at it there with me in verse 2. He's been given a mouth made like a sword and a life that serves as an arrow. This servant is an instrument in God's hands. And what kind of instrument is he? He is a weapon. He is a weapon in God's hand. Not a physical one, but a spiritual one. Isaiah tells us that the servant Jesus will come with a word. He will come as a word. He will come as the living word, as the word made flesh, as the final word, and he will speak and live 
words that compel and convict and change us. And so while the servant's mission is one of warfare, it's not with literal swords to crush and conquer, but with a message that cuts and convicts. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The words of Jesus then speak to us, continue to speak to us and about us in a way that no other words can. Jesus demands our attention. He demands that He be listened to. And He has the authority. But I don't want you to just see His calling and His mission, but also His condescension. His condescension, because I think that's one of the most compelling things about the servant Jesus. Certainly was one of the most confusing things about the servant Jesus as he came and lived his life among the Jewish people. This isn't a voice from on high demanding our attention far removed from us, speaking distant words that we're supposed to hear. This is a servant who will condescend to be one of us. And and notice that the servant for a time, will be hidden. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of His hand. He hid me. The arrow for a time will stay in the quiver hidden. For hundreds and hundreds of years after Isaiah penned these words and God's people digested them and longed even more for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of this servant, they would wait. And for 30 some years after Jesus was born in obscurity, God's people would continue to wait until God's timing was perfect and the mystery that had been hidden for ages would finally be revealed. The God-man Jesus, the servant of the Lord, born in obscurity in Bethlehem, raised in Jerusalem, excuse me, raised in Nazareth, is Emmanuel, God with us. See, this matters. Hebrews 4, we do not have one who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every respect as we are and yet without sin. The servant who demands to be listened is one of us. Indeed, we see some of the struggle here in Isaiah chapter 49. Look at verse 4 with me. I have labored in vain. I have spent part of my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, my recompense with my God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus faced real discouragement. Those in his hometown, they they tried to throw him off a cliff. His mothers and 
His mother and brothers thought he was crazy. At the end of the day, at the end of his days, all his closest companions abandoned him. What does that mean? It means that he's been through it. It means he understands. It means when he speaks and says, listen to me, he knows what to say. He's worthy to be listened to. We all want this in our politicians, right? We're entering this election year, and aren't we prone to lend our ears to those who truly understand us, not just those who have been sequestered in ivory towers? See, Jesus has earned our attention. And this young man would not only be like us, he would be us. Look at verse 3 with me. And he said to them, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Well, Why is the servant called Israel if you just said the servant was Jesus? Well, the answer is because Jesus is Israel. Because Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus embodies all that Israel was intended to be. And his righteousness, that which Israel should have possessed, is now theirs, is now anyone's who looks in faith to him and to him alone. And so we speak of being hidden in our Savior. Because the servant came not to just be like us, but to be us. To be what we could not be. See, everything in history, one of the reasons why I love preaching out of the Old Testament is because it helps make this point. It helps us drive home this point that the history of salvation, it's all about Jesus. It all converges in Jesus. One 19th century German scholar, I can't pronounce his name, but he recognized that the history of salvation is like an hourglass. It, it begins broadly and comes and gets narrow and then goes back to broad. Right? God began with the whole human race. A race that he created for fellowship with himself until they rebelled. And so then he chose Abram, then Isaac, then Jacob as the line of promise. The one on whom he set his affection. And then they rebelled. And so then he went down to a, a remnant. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus is the pinnacle of it all. And with Jesus, things begin to broaden out because Jesus came not just for the Jew, not just for the line of promise, but for all who look in faith to Him. With Jesus, salvation begins to expand again beyond the borders of Israel 
to Jew and to Gentile. And this is the glorious vision of the kingdom. It's the glorious vision of Isaiah 49. And it's the second truth that I want us to focus our hearts on. It's this, worship the victorious servant Jesus. Worship the victorious servant Jesus. The servant Jesus not only demands your attention, but he deserves your worship. The command that opens the song is listen. The imperative that closes it, in light of all that you've heard, is sing. Sing. Let worship be stirred in your hearts that your lives might be aligned. Sing to the servant who brings comfort and compassion on the afflicted. Sing to the servant who calls nations to himself and brings salvation for the entire world. It's the season of Christmas lights. You likely know that. Maybe you were on top of a louder yesterday putting up your own Christmas lights. I had kind of resolved this year that I was not going to put up my exterior Christmas lights. Usually I put up these icicle lights and and uh, when I put them up last year, doggone it, a couple of those lights, they were, a couple of those strings were out. And I went through every stinking bulb like three times trying to find out what bulb was out and, and I couldn't get them fixed. And so this year I was like, I'm not even going to mess with it. That is until my neighbor put up his lights. Now he's never, we've lived there now three years, he's never put up exterior lights. But this year he decides to not only put up exterior lights, but to outline his whole stinking house, the windows, and even the chimney. You better believe I had to respond to that. I'm not going to be the Scrooge in the neighborhood who doesn't have any lights on his house. And so I got Drew and I went to Home Depot and we got a bunch of lights and, and I told Drew, I said, Drew, we got we to gotta step it up. We got to go bigger. Usually we've just done one row of icicles on the lower roof, but I was like, we, we've got to go up top. I mean, our neighbor, he, he's made this happen. We've got to go bigger. And we did. And we're still thinking of ways we can go bigger. It's a funny illustration, it's a funny story to point out that the servant of the Lord, the victorious servant King Jesus, has come to go big, as they say. As I reread this servant psalm this week, there's a phrase here that I, that I didn't notice before that I find so striking, verse Six, the Lord says, the Lord's now sp speaking, Yahweh's speaking to his servant, and he says, it is too light a thing. It is too light a thing to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. What's Yahweh saying? He's saying, Israel's not enough. Israel's not enough. I must be glorified in all of the earth. 
all the nations must be my inheritance. And so this passage is riddled from start to finish with language of those who were afar being brought near, with those from the north and the west coming close. And indeed, with the whole entire earth being called to praise the servant king, the Jewish Messiah born in obscurity, demanding your attention and worthy of your worship. The world walks in darkness and he has come to bring them light. Jesus says himself in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Worship the victorious servant king. So how do we apply some of what we've heard? What do we take away from these two truths? Let me suggest three things. Three things that I thought of that I want to set our hearts on this morning. And the first is this. Worshiping the victor, worshiping the victorious servant begins by bowing to him. Right? By listening to his voice, recognizing who he is and what he has done. Verse 7 speaks of the future prostration of the kings of the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And one day the sword that he wields will not be words that need to be heeded. The battle won't be merely spiritual in nature. Let me read Revelation 19, verses 11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And for we who know and love the Lord Jesus, we long for this day. We pray for this day when the servant will make all things right. But for those who may not know the Lord Jesus, this is, this is a day of dread. This is a passage, this is a prophecy, this is a prediction that says, I'm not ready. I need to know this servant king. I need to bow before this servant king. I need to listen to this servant king. Jesus demands your attention, so make sure you're hearing him. Make sure you are listening. Maybe for the first time. But for we who are His, especially this time of year, you might fight. You must fight for the space to hear Him and to listen to Him, to contemplate His, his calling, His coming, His condescension, and His plans for you. That's the first way we apply this passage 
The second is this. A servant for the nations, a servant who has gone big beyond the borders of Israel, was a reminder to Israel that their God was not a mere local deity. Well, we're not Jews here this morning. We don't suffer from that problem. We suffer from a different problem. We suffer at times from an American Jesus. And I've said this before to us, we need to beware of patriotism on steroids. We need to beware of tunnel vision. We live in a great nation with great freedom. We ought to be great stewards, but this nation and our time and place is is a drop in the bucket of God's kingdom and what He is doing across this planet and what He has been doing across this planet for centuries. And so this is a passage, this is a song that for me demands that we be globally focused. Being kingdom-minded demands that we be globally focused, not simply in our prayers. Yes, in our prayers. But also in our participation in some way. Now, we're bound by limitations. Absolutely, we are. And I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on any of us. I think we at Ascension are striving to do the best that we can. But beware of patriotism on steroids. Beware of tunnel vision. Jesus came as the servant for the nations. And then finally, I think the third way we apply this is being reminded that you are the light of the world. Yeah, Jesus came as a light for the nations. Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. But he also said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives light to all. And so the servant has come to bring light through you. Through you. As the servant was sent, so are you sent. Proclaiming peace, proclaiming joy through Emmanuel, God with us. What a great passage. What a great song for us to meditate on. Brothers and sisters, this season in particular, I call you to rejoice and to rest in and to respond to this victorious servant, Jesus, who has spoken and demands that he be listened to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. Father, turn us from worthless things and give us life in your Son, give us life in your Word, that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light for our path, that we would be used by you for your glory 
to let your light so shine that they might see you. Father, we need your grace. We need your strength to be such people. Holy Spirit, take your word, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us, I pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.